My job today is very simple. I'm just moderating. So I'm going to say a few words at the start. And I guess I'll say, I hope you all had a good lunch at the end. Uh, but in between, the bulk of our, uh, our, our lunch event is going to feature Senator Ron Johnson of Wisconsin talking about lots of fun budget numbers. And I say fun in quotation marks because uh, having looked at these numbers myself for 30 years, I can assure you uh, that they might be very important, but they're not fun. Uh, and then after Senator Johnson goes through a lot of these numbers to get us all depressed, then my colleague Chris Edwards will come up and make you even more depressed. Uh, but just by way of introduction, this is a Hill audience. I don't really need to introduce a senator, although it's good that you came from the House of Lords to the House of Commons. It shows that, that you're a man of the people. But the one anecdote that I want to give about Senator Johnson to, to show you that he actually has his eye on the ball here, a couple of years ago I testified to the Senate Budget Committee and it was very, very refreshing to see Senator Johnson, not really because I was there, but just because of the hearing, actually had a couple of charts showing how government was a certain level for the 10 years before, like I guess the first decade of the century, and then under Obama's budget it was going to be even bigger, and then the following decade was going to be even bigger, because most politicians buy into this current service budget baseline, where you automatically assume government's going to grow, and if government doesn't grow quite as fast as is already projected, then that's somehow a savage and draconian cut. And it was very, very refreshing to actually see one lawmaker who immediately, and I think it was his first year or two in office, had seen through this scam and was trying to force members to look at the actual nominal year-to-year, -year, or in this case, decade-to-decade -decade changes in the expanding burden of government spending. And I suspect we're going to get more numbers like that today, looking at what the real problem is on fiscal policy. The format will be, as I said, the senator will come up, walk through these numbers, Chris will then comment, and then hopefully we'll have some time uh, for some Q&A. So without any further ado, let me pre present Senator Johnson of Wisconsin. Thanks, Dan. Uh, and thank you all for coming here. I hope you all like numbers because this is definitely a presentation about numbers. And l let me start out. My, my background is I'm an accountant uh, educationally, but I ran a manufacturing plant for 31 years. I sold plastic for the 30 years, 31 years, so I'm basically a plastic salesman. But the manufacturing background, I actually ran the equipment, uh, fully involved in the operations. One thing a manufacturing background does for you is it just embeds in your DNA root cause analysis when it comes to problem solving. And then you, you combine that in my DNA, plus being a number cruncher, a bean counter, and you're going to end up with a presentation. They thought they were doing great, you know, $75,000 in the black. And, you know, being account, understanding the cruel method of accounting, I'm, no, you guys, you've got a real problem here. You're not going to end the year in the black. So basically what I did is I took that 20-page financial statement and turned it into a one-page statement that showed the accruals that really described very simply, very starkly, what the financial situation was of, of that organization. Fast forward, I come to Washington, D.C. Again, come here, you know, thousands of really smart, really well-intentioned people, not a whole lot of accountants, not, not a whole lot of people that truly do understand a financial accounting system. So, you come here and you, you, you see budgets, and this is the skinny part of the budget. And you have literally hundreds of pages of detailed data. Some of the information, I mean, again, if, if you have specific questions, you, there's actually some information combined in, confined, or contained in here, but, but really it doesn't filter up to real information. Um, years ago, 
I remember sitting on my, you know, wa watching, this was in the early 80s, uh, always been interested in, in uh, national politics, uh, but always wondering, what does the federal government spend its money on? This is during Ronald Reagan. And this was way before the internet, where I couldn't just quick Google this and try and get the information. But you know, for years, I was just thinking, what does the federal government spend its money on? Finally, the Wall Street Journal, in, in one of their you know, review and outlook columns, just a little block, showed maybe the, the, the top five or six things the federal government spends its money on. It's like, it was a revelation to me. OK, Social Security, then Defense, then Medicare. But do you understand the point I'm making? Americans, and far too many people here in, in Washington, D.C. really don't have a clear picture of what this federal entity is, this $3.5 trillion well-intentioned entity that has all kinds of negative unintended consequences. So the attempt here today is, you're, you're going you're gonna to see the projection, it will be depressing, but the, the attempt here really is more about laying out a format and a template for policymakers, for decision makers, to first of all understand what's happening, but then also have a, a, a solutions menu or a process for actually having information where we can have honest debate and discussion because let's face it, we don't have much of it. Uh, a quick example, Paul Ryan offers a proposal to, to solve Medicare. Do we know the numbers of that? The reaction on the other side is really basically just you know, produce an ad with a Paul Ryan lookalike pushing Granny off the cliff. We've got, we've got to get past that kind of political process. We have to get past that kind of uh, political demagoguery. So let, let's hop into my PowerPoint presentation. The income statement in the United States. We can lay this out in just one page. And just look at the, the columns, revenue, outlays, and deficit. Now, I'm going to start with Social Security and Medicare because those are the primary two drivers of our long-term debt and deficit. So let's isolate those. You know, rather than trying to, to figure out you know, what the revenue is page and what page and then the, the outlay is somewhere else, and let's actually combine it so people can understand. So you can see here, in, this, is, this is the income statement for fiscal year 2013. And you can see that Social Security had $673 billion in revenue, Medicare had $209 billion. Social Security spent $808 billion, oops, that's a problem, and a deficit of $136. Medicare spent 585. There were some offsetting revenues in terms of premiums, but Medicare's uh, deficit was $376 billion for a whopping total of deficits in Medicare and Social Security, $402 billion. And again, pretty simple, pretty basic. Now, first of all, anybody that takes a look at, for example, Social Security and says it's solvent, is just bold-faced lying to you. Because I was just mentioning it to, to Chris and Dan, in budget committee hearings, I've been, I've been bludgeoning administration officials to admit what OMB's own publication admits, that the trust fund has U.S. government bonds as an asset, $2.77 trillion worth, but a U.S. government bonds a, a liability to the Treasury. You, can, you consolidate the books of the federal government, that nets to zero. And OMB says netting to zero in their own publication, government officials just won't admit it. But anyway, you can see up at top here now, pr pr pretty basic, the problem is Social Security and Medicare. And I just go... What's, what's the next way of doing this? There we go. Very few people really understand where the federal government gets this revenue from. You can see up top, $882 billion in payroll tax. That's just a portion of it. There's a little bit more down below, but none of the $66 billion. But the biggest, the biggest revenue generator is really the individual income tax, then the corporate tax, less than 10%. And by the way, you're going to get in your handouts. 
I've got percentages of GDP and percentages of the total here. It just junks up the, the slide. But again, you lay out the revenue, the, the seven or eight primary uh, components of revenue, lays it out there. It's an important part of our discussion. If, if we really are going to solve inversions, you know, let's take a look at really how much revenue does the corporate income tax raise. Let's look how destructive that is. Look at how counterproductive it is. Let's, let's discuss how it's really not the piece of paper that's the corporate charter pays the tax, it's, it's us. It's a self-inflicted wound. It's, it's, it's employees, it's, it's consumers that are paying that corporate tax. And it's only raising about 10% of federal revenue. It's an important piece of information to have. Let's take a look at outlays. So you, you, you know, after Social Security Medicare, you got defense, you got non-defense discretionary, you can just kind of go down the list. Again, it lays out for the American public, it lays out for, for policymakers, here's the revenue, here's the expense, and here's the deficit. So on one piece of paper, a single page income statement, we can see that the, the primary driver of our deficit in 2013 was Social Security, Medicare, $402 billion. The rest of it totaled $278 billion for a, a whopping total, although President Obama's crowing about the fact we've cut the deficit in half, it's still $680 billion, okay? So I think that's, that's important to understand. Now, how do you solve this problem? Um, I think it's important to recognize, well, let's, let's first of all go to another, another format for this. Um, by the way, this is the first time I've ever given this, so you're kind of the guinea pigs. This, this is probably not as polished as I hope it's going to get. Um, you can use this income statement for any time period, a particular fiscal year, or what I've done here is the 30-year time frame, which I believe is the definition of the problem. You know, part, of the, part of the problem we have here in D.C. is we're always talking about a 10-year budget window problem. It's not a 10-year budget window issue. It's a 30-year demographic problem. All the bo baby boom generation retiring the rate of 10,000 people per day. We've made all these promises. We haven't made the provision to pay for them. So it's really a 30-year time frame, that demographic bubble that we need to concentrate on. And the reason I've selected 30 years, by the way, it's comprehensible. You know, we're either talking about 10-year or we're talking about 75-year solvency. And people just kind of blow off 75-year solvency or or unfunded liabilities, they don't understand them, it's, it's past their lifespan, they just don't care about it. My, my little baby just turned 31. You know, for you young people, I'll guarantee you, that went by like that. So 30 years is something I think people can comprehend. We should concentrate on a 30-year budget window. That's one of my primary points here. But what, I, what I've done here is I've just loaded in CBO's alternate fiscal scenario. And we'll be talking a little bit about that in greater depth. But you can just see, what drives our 30-year deficit? About 50 trillion of deficit in Social Security and Medicare, about, about 76 trillion with uh, the other items of the budget, primarily that's interest, for a whopping total of $126 trillion over the next 30 years worth of deficit. Now, I was part of the small group of senators that President Obama invited out to dinner on what was you know, basically called in the press the charm offensive. Uh, I appreciated the outreach, and I think Americans would have been heartened by the discussion. It was, it was very genuine, it was frank, it was, it was complete. Um, during the dinner, President Obama started out by laying out, from his standpoint, what drives the debt and deficit, and he was accurate. It was, it's it's health care spending, it's Medicare. And he went on to say, you know, the problem in trying to reform Medicare is that for every dollar that goes into the system, Americans are going to get $3 out. And he kind of quietly leaned over and said, and most Americans don't understand that. 
Well, Mr. President, that's because publicly the only thing you say about it is, is that Medicare just requires modest reforms. And other politicians are saying that Social Security is solvent to the year 2033. I think they revised that to 2031. It's not. It's already in deficit. Trust fund has no value. So we need to start speaking honestly with the American public. Uh, partly because of my prodding and, and the prodding of others, President Obama made his White House staff available to us. And again, I appreciated the outreach. Uh, I actually ended up being part of the smaller group that was working with the White House trying to find some, some common ground. Uh, during our first meeting with the approximately 20, 24 senator, Republican senators that had dinner with them, as we were talking about how are we going to respond, how are we going to approach these meetings with the president, uh, because President Obama talked about Medicare, uh, a lot of people have Medicare proposals and they wanted to get those on the table right away. Uh, I kind of raised my hand and said, guys, you know, I don't think that's real smart because he hasn't publicly admitted to the problem, the first step. And, and we haven't properly defined the, the, the problem. And one of my Republican colleagues said, oh, we don't have to. We know, this. We know the problem. I said, oh, what is it? I said, well, you know, we've got to have four to five trillion dollars worth of deficit reduction. Well, where'd you get that from? Well, Simpson Bowles. Do you realize we've basically done 81% of Simpson Bowles? Now, it's been a pretty ugly process, not, not how I'd want to solve the problem, but you take a look at Simpson Bowles, you know, proposed raising almost a trillion dollars worth of revenue. In the fiscal cliff deal, we increased taxes about $700 billion. They looked for $1.2 trillion of discretionary savings. We beat them, $2.1 trillion. Uh, you know, there's, there were some mandatory parts of their proposal, and of course, they also had some Social Security reform. So you add it all up, Simpson Bowles is looking for about $3.4, $3.5 trillion of deficit reduction then they give themselves credit for about $673 billion in interest savings because of those, those reductions in the rate of growth and spending. And you know, we're, we're at 81%. It hasn't really made a dent in that long-term fiscal scenario. So again, it's just one of those things you, I keep hearing all the time in the political demagoguery. If only we would have done Simpson-Bowles, you know, we'd have solved this problem. No, we did it, and we haven't solved the problem. Let's, let's stop lying to the American people. Let's stop hoodwinking them. Hoodwinking them. Let's stop pulling the wool over their eyes. When we were working at the White House, again, I was trying to drive this process. We, we actually did a 30-year projection, which I'll talk, talk about a little bit later, but, but here was the problem we were running into. The White House had their own projection. It was like pulling teeth getting it out of them. I mean, it really was, you know, and they would only give us percentages of GDP, kind of like CBO does with the alternate fiscal scenario in their long-term baselines. They, they don't do it in dollars where it's understandable. They always publish it as percentage of GDP. So we've always been put in the position where we got to convert those percentages to dollars, but we did so. So in working with the White House, driving that process of a 30-year budget window, uh, this is what we determined that uh, the White House was looking as they were putting forward solutions. They, they were looking at the decade, the first decade, about a $6 trillion deficit, second decade, 12, third decade, 19, for a whopping total of $37 trillion. Now that's, that's massive. You know, I don't know whether you know, we're, our financial system is going to handle that. I'm not sure we'll continue to be the world's reserve currency. We can borrow that amount of money. But that was the White House's perspective. Here's the problem with that, though. You compare the percentage of spending in their projections to a 20-year average in entitlements. I mean, I think they're accurate here. They, they actually may be overestimating it, 14.8% versus the 20-year average of 8.3. Well, look at defense. Over the last 20 years, it's been 3.9, they're projecting 2.3. Other programs have been 6.7, they're projecting 4.2. And of course, net interest kind of falls out of the model. It's kind of the plug figure. So 
know, the White House is looking at spending over the next 30 years at 23.7% of, of, uh, of GEP versus the average of 20.8. Let me just talk about 10-year versus 20-year and why I chose in all the handouts to use the 20-year average rather than a 10-year. And I'm mainly doing it to be more, to take into account the very low spending during peace during the Clinton administration, where, where defense spending really went down. So if I would just use the 10-year average defense spending, we'd be at 4.2%. But let's quick take a look at the history of defense spending. In the 50s, 10.2. In the 60s, 8.4. 70s and 80s were right around 5.5%, the 90s. And quite honestly, all of the, I guess you call it the aughts, at 3.7%. In the last five years, we've been at 4.2%. Now, we're in a world of hurt geopolitically, you know, national security-wise. Partly because NATO's let their guard down. Very few NATO countries even achieved their 2% of GDP commitment. But the White House and their projection is putting us down to the level of Europe. That's not, that's just not possible. It's not going to happen. So I want to be a little bit more realistic about this. So if you look at, for example, CBO's baseline, their current baseline, this is, this is I guess, what CBO would say based on current policy, uh, I guess it would be likely to happen. Would that be the right definition, Pat? No, just legally. Just, just what is in legal law. They're looking at $8 trillion the first decade, $18 trillion the second decade, $40 trillion the third decade for a whopping total of $66 trillion. Again, compare that to the White House $37 trillion. Now, again, I really want you paying attention to the decade one, decade two, decade three total. That's the template. That's the format I want policymakers, think tanks to start laying out the problem and laying out different solutions in that format, because I think people can actually handle four numbers, maybe not 100, but I think they can handle four that are this descriptive. Now, if you take a look at the CBO's baseline, compare that, the spending in, in, that makes up that projection versus the 20-year average, you can see they're actually projecting less in terms of Social Security and Medicare, only slightly more in terms of defense, not much more in terms of other program spending, and of course, net interest is just the plug figure. Now, again, I'm, I'm just, you're, you're here in town, you see the political process, you see how easy it is to continue to spend money, how difficult it is to restrain spending growth. Anybody think we're only going to spend 2.6% on defense, or we're going to be able to cut all this other spending from 6.7% to 4.8? I think it's highly unlikely, which is why we did our projection. And you, you'll have this in your packet, and we've actually shown you the, the eight different spending categories that we, we did some modeling on. And you see, we, we end up with about $5 trillion first decade, 25 the second, 71 trillion the third decade for a whopping total of $101 trillion. Now, this, by the way, when, when we were in the White House for about a two-hour meeting, the President Obama came in to the, the meeting for about the last half, uh, I showed him this. And like I had in the dinner, I, I was asking him to utilize his bully pulpit to go to the American public and describe the problem, define it. Get the American people to admit collectively that we've got this problem, that we are committing intergenerational theft. And we'd be right there behind him. The first act of bipartisanship really has to be to honestly assess and communicate to the American pu public the extent of the problem. You know his response to, to me was? He said, Ron, <laughs> we show the American public numbers this big, I mean, it's going to scare them. I mean, they're going to give up all hope. He said, besides, Ron, we can't do all the work. We have to leave some work for future presidents and future Congresses. <laughs> I, that, that's, all, that's a verbatim quote, just about, OK? 
I'll have people backing me up on that. That's pretty depressing. I mean, I came here, I'm willing to work with anybody who's willing to first acknowledge the problem, work with me in good faith to solve it. That pretty well told me I didn't have a partner, a willing partner, a good faith partner to do so. But let's just see how ours tax stacks up against the 20 year average. Uh, you know, we have entitlements, and again, when we talk about Social Security and Medicare, we're using CBO estimates. We're Congress, we'll use that, nonpartisan, totally nonpartial. 13.4% uh, defense, you know, we boosted a little bit. We're about 3.5. I'm not sure we're going to be able to get away, as, as we're watching the world burn today, with only 3.5% of defense spending. Okay, but that's, that's in our projection. I think it shows you how reasonable our projection is. Other programs, you know, we, still, we still have that lower than the 6.7%. And again, interest is just a plug figure. Now let's look at CBO's alternate fiscal scenario. That when you really look at their assumptions from my standpoint, this is the more likely scenario, either ours or theirs. I, I think the range really is about $100 trillion to $127 trillion. And you see how it lays out here. $8 trillion the first decade, $31 the second decade, $88 trillion the third decade. And again, trust me, 30 years is going to be on us in no time. You know, those of you with white hair like me in here, you understand that. Trust me, I, I hate to depress you, but young people, but time steeps, keeps moving faster and faster every year that goes by. For again, a whopping total of $127 trillion, and if we chart that against uh, average GDP, you can see very similar entitlements, 3.5 defense, a little more realistic in terms of other programs, 6%. And again, because we keep driving these deficits higher and higher and higher, interest becomes a larger and larger component, you know, crowding out really defense and other programs. So that, that's what's on our horizon right here. Uh, one thing I've certainly noticed in, in this, this new world I'm, I've entered is people are just immune to millions and billions and trillions. I did see a, a, a button that said, please, God, don't tell Washington what comes after trillions. Um, <laughs> so I try, I try and put things into perspective because let's face it, $127 trillion is just incomprehensible. So you have to understand that the entire net private asset base of, of America, every asset held by every household, every business, large or small, is $106 trillion. So I know we got some economists in the room. I know we got some, some accountants as well, some financial people here. You don't have to be an economist or, or an accountant to recognize that's a problem. And it's a problem that we better start addressing now. Not tomorrow, now. And unfortunately, we're not. Okay, let, let's get into what I want to talk about is a template for putting forward solutions so we actually start having an honest, open, uh, valuable discussion about these things. Now, none of these solutions are my proposals. I'm not proposing any of these things. I think the beauty of what I'm trying to do here, you don't have to propose them. You don't have to say, this is what I'm for. I'm just looking for scores, for options, a solutions menu. So we can start throwing out all the different things we could potentially do to start filling these, these enormous deficits. Now, I hear all the time, well, Social Security, that's the easy one to solve. Oh, really? <laughs> Give it a try. So again, the format, I think, is very important. Take a look. So this, this, and the reason I'm using Social Security as the template here, it's the one actuarially that's most certain. This is pretty, these are pretty solid numbers. We, we know the demographics. We know actually how people are going to live or how long they're going to live. We know the benefits that have been promised to them. So, you know, the, the folks at CBO, the trustees and stuff, got this number down pretty well. We're, we're not using trustee number for this, the problem. We're using CBOs, which shows over 30 years, Social Security will pay out $14.6 trillion more in benefits than they bring in the payroll tax. 
$14.6 trillion. And again, remember, the trust fund has no value to the federal government. This is a problem. But you can see how it breaks down. $1.5 trillion the first decade, $4.8 the second decade, $8.4 trillion the third decade. So the first sheet here in Solutions Menu just is talking about benefit adjustments. Simpson-Bowles, their, uh, uh, their, their proposal in terms of uh, Social Security was only scored over 10 years. Again, we're trapped in that 10-year budget window. By the way, are you noticing how, how the 10-year budget window isn't adequate? How it distorts the, the real problem? How it minimizes it? That's why we're trapped in the 10-year budget window. That's why it's so necessary to go 30 years. But, you know, Simpson-Bowles scored over 10 years, $100 billion. Well, it's better than nothing, but that first decade is $1.5 trillion in deficit. Uh, you start, I'm, I'm not going to go through all these. You can see them in your, in your, uh, uh, your handout or go onto our website, by the way. This PowerPoint presentation will be on there, plus the backup materials. Um, you can see the benefits. The, the big, biggest one is a 1% COLA cut, which solves about 46% of that deficit. Okay? This is how I think we need, this is the kind of information we need, this is how I think we need the information laid out so we can actually have an honest debate. Let's look at the revenue side. And by the way, this is a real danger for conservatives because just, just go down the right-hand column there, you can see that raising revenue certainly fills that gap pretty quick, supposedly. Notice the yellow line on the very bottom, dynamic offset of increased taxes. All of these tax increases, of course, are scored as CBO scores everything statically. And if you really think you can raise taxes on the American public by $12 trillion and not have a dynamic effect of reducing people's incentive to work, I mean, you're just not facing reality. So I think the challenge for conservatives, the challenge for uh, think tanks like Cato is these, these things are going to be out there. They're already out there. They're all being, already being scored. Orrin Hatch, by the way, and I gotta, you have to look at this. This is going to be on our website. Orrin Hatch uh, wrote a letter to CBO and laid out all kinds of different potential solutions. And CBO did a real good job of getting back to him. But my wife is a former IRS, IRS agent uh, and an accounting background herself. And I, I gave her CBO's answers on these things. I said, hey, Jane, can you interpret this? And her reaction was, oh, my God. <laughs> and that's the problem. I think, I think I was talking to either Chris or Dan earlier, and we were kind of talking about, yeah, they, they do it where it's almost incomprehensible for a reason. I guess that's the cynics in us. So we, we've got to turn this kind of information into something that's actually usable for the public, for policymakers. But again, let me em under, uh, or emphasize, before I get off this slide, how critically important it is for conservatives to be able to push back by having the, the offset, the counter of these static tax increase proposals in terms of what that dynamic effect is going to be. Because the pressure is going to be on revenue. It always is. Um, this is just a chart, a chart basically showing why, how you really ought to be talking about any kind of revenue, where it's so much easier. You know, rather than looking at CBO scored under, in this report right here, they scored a, C, uh, a tax increase of 3.54%, 2.29, 1.61, 2.0, 4.0. The Social Security trustees have about a 2.9. Now, to me, that's silly. I mean, why, why don't you total up all those things? And that's exactly what I did, is I, I took a look at the 30-year score, converted these things into 30-year score, divided by the percent increase to come up with how much would that tax revenue raise per 1%. Now, let's you know, just basically have a, a guideline there. If, if you're going to increase taxes over 30 years by 1% in terms of Social Security, in terms of payroll tax, 
you'll raise somewhere between four, four and a half trillion dollars of revenue. To me, it's a whole lot easier putting that in your brain as a policymaker. A 1% increase will yield about four, four and a half trillion dollars worth of revenue in the Social Security Trust Fund prior to the dynamic score offset. Okay? So again, just trying just try to simplify the process. And I think this is my, no, this is my last budget sheet. I, I can quick run through uh, my last one. This is just Medicare. Again, just take a look at it, laid out the same way. Uh, over the next 30 years, about $35 trillion. More in benefits paid, paid out versus the, the payroll tax. Now, I realize Medicare was never designed to be fully funded through the payroll tax. Tell that to the American people. They certainly come up to me and, well, you know, Sarah, you can't cut Medicare. That's my money. Well, you know, a buck of the $3 is. But two of the dollars is not. Two of the dollars is going to be coming from your kids, your grandkids, your great-grandkids. And it's important for us to understand that. But again, there's, there's a real slim number of proposals on Medicare, and you can all see how, how totally inadequate they are in terms of solving the problem. Th this is, this is where President Obama was absolutely right. Medicare, healthcare spending is the biggest problem driving our debt and deficit. We gotta get it under control, but we gotta start talking honestly about what it is we need to do to solve the problem. Now, let me, let me move to the challenge here and why I think it's so important we start talking in common language, a common template, a common time period in terms of the debt and deficit. Certainly in my new life here, I'm always trying to break through the communication barrier. We have to. Uh, this is a political process. You have to inform, you have to persuade, you have to win the, 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 the argument. It's not gonna do much good to, to be really courageous and throw a solution on the table before people have admitted they have a problem or properly defined it. Those solutions will have no chance. And that's been happening for decades here. They have no chance. We have to actually get people to admit they have the problem to define it properly. So, we gotta break through the communication barrier. But here's the structural problem conservatives have in this war of ideas. The left is very good at it. You know, they've got the presidency, they've got the Senate. They have our education system. Have you noticed that? Our education system is not exactly for a free, you know, they're not in favor of a free market competitive system, by and large. They're certainly not for conservatives. They have our entertainment media. They have our news media. Structurally, conservatives, it's amazing we're even surviving. The left can bust through the communication barrier at will. Have, have you noticed if the left wants to talk about income inequality? What do we talk about? You know, they actually get a, a little French guy to write a book it becomes the, the most celebrated book on, on, on the New York Times list, right? They're very good at it. They're very effective. We're not. What, what, what do we have to oppose the left being on offense? Well, from my standpoint, one of the biggest things conservatives can do is piece of pa pa pass a piece of legislation. It gets noticed. It has a chance of at least pushing back on the communication barrier. The problem is, so often, the legislation we pass, not particularly strategic, it's not really directed where it needs to be, either politically or solution-wise, it's off target. The other thing we've got, we got, we got a, us. You know, I, I, if I'm even on there, I'm such a little, little speck, a little arrow, you can't even see it. These are think tanks. These are all the people in the conservative movement. Totally diffuse. Not coordinated. And what's really unfortunate is, and we certainly saw this during the defund effort, is we've turned those arrows at ourselves. We engage far too often circular firing squads. You know, I'm, I, we've got to remain united as conservatives, as Republicans, as libertarians. If we, if we do remain united, we have a chance of saving this country. If not, we lose. 
and then America loses. So th this is like Rumsfeld said, this is you know, when you go to army, you go to war with the army you got. This is about increasing our numbers. This is about, again, informing, persuading, win the argument, understanding we've got a broad spectrum of ideas in, in, in our party, in our movement. It needs to be respected. Let's try and figure out the things we agree on. And if we can't agree on the fact that we've got a 30-year deficit out there, potentially $127 trillion large, and we can't come together and maybe put our differences aside to first start solving that so this nation survives financially, uh, we're not going to have much hope of winning the argument. That's what we got to do. We got to come up with a common way of talking about these things. We got to come up with a common template for laying out solutions, describing the problem. We got to unify our movement and we've got to be, we've got to be unified. So with that, I'm done. Turn it over to Chris. Thank you very much, uh, Senator uh, Johnson. That was really fantastic. You need to get Senator Harry Reid, sit him down right front and center and drill this uh, into him. Um, it sure is refreshing having uh, a senator who is an accountant. I think we'd be a long way to solving our problems if we got rid of a lot of the lawyers and we got a lot more accountants on uh, Capitol Hill with some economists thrown in as well. Uh, I'm just going to talk for about uh, five or ten minutes uh, about CBO spending projections and why the situation is much worse than what the CBO usually points to and what the media usually reports. In a recent column, Paul Krugman dismissed concerns about the federal debt as a false alarm and as an imaginary budget and debt crisis, unquote. Krugman thinks the CBO projections don't look too bad. He said, quote, debt in 2039 is projected to be no higher as a percent of GDP than debt America had at the end of World War II. So he said, we don't have a debt crisis and never did, unquote. Krugman was looking at CBO's baseline projection that comes out in this big fat uh, report every, every year. The baseline projection that the media always reports uh, way, way, way understates the problem we have uh, ahead. But even that baseline projection shows debt rising from 74% today to 106% by 2039. I mean, I even think, unlike Krugman, that that baseline projection is really scary. I mean, the World War II debt uh, was massive. So Krugman's saying that, well, we're just going up to World War II levels. I mean, that's pretty, pretty darn scary. Other than World War II, federal debt has never been anywhere near as high as it is now. But Washington budget wonks know that the CBO baseline uh, is a very optimistic projection. The CBO's alternative, as the senator mentioned, is much more realistic for various reasons. It assumes that the dock, fi dock fix is extended, that temporary um, tax breaks are extended like they always are. So with that more realistic alternative, CBO shows debt rising to 163% by 2039. But here's the thing, the, the reality uh, of, of uh, our fiscal reality in the future is much worse even than CBO's worst alternative projection for all kinds of reasons. I mean, one is even the alternative assumes that spending caps under the 2011 Budget Control Act will hold. What if they don't? Both the CBO baseline and the alternative projection assumes large cuts to Medicare from the Obamacare legislation. So a lot of healthcare experts are very skeptical that those cuts would actually take place. Hopefully Obamacare itself won't last, but we'll see about that. Um, possible wars. America seems to get involved in an expensive war every decade or two. Wars are not in CBO projections. You look at the Iraq and Afghanistan wars, they, they added at least $2 trillion on to federal debt. 
Deep recessions. Recessions are not in CBO projections. This last recession uh, lopped uh, out about $2 trillion of federal revenues. So, you know, going ahead, we're going to have recessions and they're going to uh, uh, pile on uh, federal debt uh, massively. New spending. Congress's response to every crisis is to add new spending. I mean, look at the border crisis, look at the VA crisis. The response every time to, is to add more spending. We will have more crises in the future. The, the biggest problem, though, with CBO projections, and the Senator touched on this, is that CBO in its basic alternative and baseline projections do not show the negative economic effects of rising spending and debt on GDP. The reality is, reality is that spending and debt and tax rates rise, GDP will be suppressed, so that the ratio of spending and debt will get a lot worse and worse and worse. It's sort of like a death spiral. So CBO does, in their uh, projections, have a special chapter that looks at some of these negative feedback effects. And so they find, you know, under this scenario, you know, debt rises to 183% of GDP by 2039. Uh, but CBO probably understates those macroeconomic uh, feedback effects for various reasons. But here's something that I think is really important. CBO does not include all the microeconomic damage caused by rising spending. The federal government has over 2,000 different subsidy programs. Every single one of those subsidy programs creates economic distortions and reduces GDP. The higher spending gets on all of these programs, the more damage is done to GDP. Rising unemployment insurance causes uh, less uh, employment. Rising social security spending induces people to save less. Farm subsidies distort agricultural production. Housing subsidies distort investment. Federal water and sugar subsidies create distortions. Welfare programs, of course, create uh, uh, dependency and other social problems. The bigger the government is, the more waste and fraud there is. CBO doesn't look at that sort of thing in its projections. So CBO does look at some of these micro effects. For example, CBO does say in their, in their report that uh, rising transfer payments reduce the incentive to work. But even they admit that they only partly take that negative effect into account. Similarly, similarly CBO says that you know, they assume that federal investment doesn't create as big a return as private investment would. So if the government invested 100 bucks, um, the, 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 federal, uh, the, federal, the CBO assumes that the federal government would create benefits of maybe $105, uh, whereas the private sector would create benefits of maybe $110. The reality is, though, many federal programs don't just have a low return, they have a negative return. I mean, there's a lot of federal programs we know just simply don't work. I mean, major reports have come out over, over the years finding that programs like Head Start, federal job training programs, they don't work. So the government can invest another $100 in them, and the, and the return is not you know, zero. The return is actually negative. The society gets no extra benefit from this spending. So the bigger federal spending is, the more of these negative effects I think are going to take place in the reduced GDP. So a final point to think about um, that, you know, CBO, you know, there's no real way for them to model it, is that the more federal subsidies there are, the more it creates demand for more federal subsidies. There's sort of a negative learning effect. The bigger government gets, the more of a demand for, for big government there is. And you can see this with food stamps. The food stamp program has roughly quadrupled in cost over the last decade. If you go back to 2008, and you look at what the CBO projected for the year 2018 in food stamp costs. They were projecting that food stamp costs in 2018 would be $49 billion. The current projection for 2018 is that food, stamp will, food stamps will cost $76 billion, a much bigger number. 
So what has happened? Well, it's not that more people are unemployed, going to be unemployed in 2018. It's that th there's been a negative learning effect. More people have got on food stamps, more people have learned how the program works, and more and more people, like college students who didn't used to take food stamps, are taking them. So I think subsidies have this really sort of insidious effect. The more people take them, the more people want to take them, the more people run to Washington uh, and demand them. So the bottom line, uh, and we can go to questions uh, with the senator uh, in a few minutes, uh, Policymakers should be aware that the negative side risks of CBO projections are large. CBO does not include all the negative effects of spending in their projections, and that there's a lot of unplanned contingencies in the future, like possible wars, that will push the government into a financial crisis much faster than the usual projections show. And I've got two final sort of accounting points that may uh, interest the senator. Uh, if you look at in, in just about any CBO or OMB report, it shows federal spending this year at $3.6 trillion. Uh, but that's net spending. Federal spending this year will actually, actually be $4.1 trillion. The federal government gets about half a trillion a year in so-called offsetting receipts. Medicare premiums, national park fees, mineral royalties all come in and they offset the bottom line spending. So federal spending is actually $4.1 trillion uh, dollars and that's that's uh, that you know the bigger government is uh, the more damage it is to the economy and it's that larger gross spending number that I think is more uh, a more re realistic estimate of the impact of government on the economy so a final accounting point uh, that is that also uh, makes the situation look worse is, is this if you look at uh, uh, federal government data US federal state local spending in, uh, in the United States is about 34% of GDP. But if you go to OECD data, they, ca they look at national income accounts data for all the in industrial countries, and they put government spending on a consistent basis. So if you look at OECD data, uh, US, US federal, state, local spending is 39% of GDP, five per percentage points higher than what US government sources show. So, you know, the other scary thing, if you look at CBO or o OECD data is, you know, the size of the American government is actually only a little bit smaller than the average size of governments in the OECD now. We have sadly become just another big, uh, costly welfare state. Uh, and that is really unfortunate because I think our historic smaller size of government is the thing that has, has made uh, America a much richer country than most European countries. And I think it's really sad. Uh, as our welfare state grows bigger, we're going to undermine that uh, traditional historic advantage we've got. So with that, we can go to uh, questions to uh, the senator.